I am Wendell B. Harris, Jr., and you are listening to The World is Wrong Podcast. Hello, folks. Just a quick heads up. This episode features discussions of sexual assault, racism, anti-Semitism, and a whole host of disturbing topics featured in this week's film. So please be forewarned. Let's just do it, and then I can tell you my opinion and you can say your opinion, and we can just work through this uh, difficult... Uh, yes. <laughs> we, can, we can work through this tor- turmoil and tragedy together, because I am both left confused and upset uh, by this film. So, let's just do it. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about... Good, Good luck, Miss Wyckoff! Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Andros Jones. And I'm Brian Connolly, the other host. The other host. The better host, some might say. No, never. (laughs) I don't think anyone says that. I think everyone agrees that you're the better host. Well, let's get through this episode and we'll see if people still agree with with that. So uh, today we're covering a film that I su- that I suggested and you watched last night and we just finished a conversation where I had to convince you to talk about it. It is Why? good Why? luck. It is called Good Luck Miss Wyckoff. It is one of two screenplays written by Polly Platt. It is based upon a William Inge novel. It came out in 1979. And Brian, it gave you nightmares. This is one of the most upsetting movies I've ever seen. In on many in many ways and many levels. And we can go into it. <laughs> okay. Usually usually I put on a good face. It's maybe going to be hard. I try to be the positive, most more positive between the two, wouldn't you say? I mean, I like even cowgirls get the blues. So clearly I smile like an idiot through most <laughs> most movies. This one's going to be a little more challenging. I, up front, really did not enjoy this movie or this experience. But maybe I'm not supposed to. <laughs> so we'll get into it. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, well... It- I'll let you. I'll let your words ring out as we listen to this first clip from the film, and then we'll come back and I'll, uh, I'll to some degree agree and some degree disagree. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. You like what I gave you yesterday? You liked it, didn't you? You want it again? Well, now, come on over and get it. Come on, Miss Wyckoff. Don't let nothing like this go to waste. You better come get it while you can. Let's see you beg a little, Miss Wyckoff. What do you mean, Rafe? I'd like to see you crawl over here on your hands and knees and beg. I could never do such a degrading thing. Yes, you could. Come on now, let's see you. Down on your knees. Beg. Junior here wants a little attention. Now, if you ain't nice to Junior, his daddy's like to get mad. Move! Good luck, 
Miss Wyckoff. This film was so traumatizing to me that I stopped watching it a little over halfway through. I only watched the second half after we decided to do a show about it, in fact. And since then, I've watched it at least two more times, and it now feels to me kind of like a precursor to David Lynch's work. And maybe, maybe, one of the most important films of the 1970s. (laughs) Stifle yourself, Brian. Polly Platt, who co-wrote the screenplay based upon William Inge's novel, is said to have been unhappy with the film. And I get it. But when has a writer's displeasure with the final cinematic product kept us from enjoying films like Citizen Kane or The Shining? William Inge wrote Bus Stop, Picnic, Come Back, Little Sheba, and Splendor in the Grass, and I can't imagine he loved all those movies. The film's director, Marvin Chomsky, was a 70s TV director best known for his work on projects like Holocaust and Roots, and that feels about right because this film makes 1950s America feel like 1930s Germany. Okay, what's it about? The film was marketed as an erotic psychodrama about a teacher played by Anne Haywood who is a middle-aged virgin. I guess they had to do this. They probably couldn't say what it is really about. What is revealed in the opening frames of the film in graffiti on Miss Wyckoff's front stoop in a phrase that I'm just, I don't think we're going to say on this podcast, but I will uh, put a screenshot of that on our page about this episode so you can see what viewers see in the first two and a half minutes of this film. Okay, so Miss Wyckoff is a beloved liberal-minded teacher in a high school in Freedom, Kansas in 1951. We know it's 1951 because we meet her and her fellow teachers, including Caroline Jones, Ronnie Blakely, and Dorothy Malone, thirstily going out to see Marlon Brando in a streetcar named Desire. It's weird because they are totally unaware that their very conservative landlady is being played by Marlon Brando's sister, (laughs) Jocelyn Brando. During the first part of the film, we learn two things. One is that Miss Wyckoff stands up for a fellow teacher who has been accused by Dorothy Malone's character of being a communist for assigning the writings of Karl Marx in a political history course. The second thing we learn about Miss Wyckoff is that she is a virgin who is losing her fucking mind. This leads to an uncomfortable examination by a gynecologist we learn was also a high school classmate played by Robert Vaughn and a series of sessions with a Jewish psychiatrist played by Donald Pleasance and an almost affair with a flirtatious bus driver who is kind of a aged version of Don Murray's character from Bus Stop, another William Inge uh, adaptation. And then Miss Wyckoff gets raped in her classroom by one of her black student athletes working on the custodial staff at the high school she fought to integrate, and she likes it. That's where I stopped watching the film the first time, and I guess where we should start talking. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a, tra- yeah. a traumatizing movie, a confusing movie. I'm so confused by what this movie's trying to say. And yeah. maybe if I mean, have you looked at the book or read about the book? Like maybe the book adds a little more context to what the hell's going on. 
but I just found myself just being like so baffled by every character's decision and so just upset by everything that was going on and the way that everyone reacted to everything that I was just kind of left shaken. <laughs> like when it was over, I was like, what the fuck is this movie? And I think the note that I wrote is this movie is broken is the last thing that I wrote. And then I just kind of gave up on writing any more notes because I was just too busy being incredibly upset. Like, if you have a trigger, this movie may definitely trigger it. <laughs> uh, my description might trigger it. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, do you want to know how the world is wrong about this film? Please. Okay, so, well, first of all, we only have two screenplays from Polly Platt. One is for Pretty Baby, and one is for Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff. When I say that this might be one of the most important films of the 70s, it's because Polly Platt is one of the most important hidden cinematic voices of the 70s, considering her contribution to the work of Peter Bogdanovich and then later to James Brooks and to, uh, to Wes Anderson. But she was definitely in the soup of Hollywood in the 70s. And both of the films that she wrote are dealing with dangerous, taboo topics, particularly about, both of them are about a woman's sexual awakening. One, a uh, prepubescent Brooke Shields, and one, a middle-aged Anne Haywood. And considering that those themes are so, I don't know, they're, they're similar themes. It feels like there is the beginning of a cinematic voice that I feel like I would really like to, I, I would love for Polly Platt to have been able to explore. And also, since that's all we have, I feel like it's deserving of a conversation. The fact that there's no conversation about that uh, might mean that those films are still ahead of their times because we're still it's still very difficult to engage them as we both experienced. Um, and the other thing is that the 1970s were a decade filled with nostalgia for the 1950s. And unlike George Lucas and many others, this film has no needle drops and it feels like it was made by and for people who were never invited to cruise Ventura Boulevard with George Lucas or hang out at Al's with the Fonz. <laughs> uh, you know, Polly Platt, I, I should say, uh, I actually reached out to Karina Longworth, the creator of the You Must Remember This podcast, because she did a whole season on Polly Platt. And I actually reached out to her twice to try and get her to give me some more information about Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff, once when that series was running and then once in preparation for this hoping that she might join us to discuss it. But uh, she let me know that she had based her podcast on Polly's journals, and she really wrote very little about this film and was not happy with it. Hmm. So she's on your side in that sense. <laughs> uh, so the, the writer hated it. The producers had no idea how to market it. It's incredibly painful to watch. And like I said, the premier scholar on all things Polly Platt uh, also doesn't want to talk about it. And she has very good reasons. Um, and they may include just not knowing how to talk about it in the sense that, you know, she doesn't host a, the world is wrong podcast. She hosts a 
celebration, a different kind of celebration of film and exploration of film podcasts. So uh, personally, my take on this is that I think this film, when you look at the fact that Marvin Chomsky was at this time directing TV projects like Holocaust and Roots that really just stared into the bleakest historical nightmares. And he, I'm with the name Marvin J. Chomsky, I'm assuming he was Jewish, and I feel that sort of Jewish fatalism in this film. And, um, and so that's how it resonates for me. But I suspect it probably resonates very differently for the different constituencies who are more viscerally, viscerally connected to the experience of women and black men, which are the two classes of people that I find myself watching the film and just feeling so much. Uh, that's why I left. I felt I wanted to protect both of these people and I couldn't watch it. But that's that's my weakness. So to me, I think it's an undeniably courageous film and one we sh- that people should be talking about uh, whether or not we like it or think it's valuable. Like, like, do you really think that the poor, like, well, let's, sorry, I'm, ref- <laughs> I'm referencing com- our conversation earlier. Let me dial this back. Brian, having heard all this, what do you have to say about it? Uh, I see, like, I was very upset by this movie, not just because of the content, but just the way it handled the content. I feel like a better movie could have handled this. I don't know. I just feel like it to me, it came off as very misogynistic and very racist, maybe because these things, these horrible things are happening and they didn't make any sense to me. It didn't make any sense to me. This is why the characters are going along with it why it's happening. The movie doesn't seem to want to try to explain that to me. And it just felt really mean. It just felt like, I don't know. It just kind of reminded me a bit of like some of those <clears throat> extreme, you know, like French movies from the early aughts or like, like, or maybe how some people might think of some of the movies of Lars von Trier, though I think his movies are better than this, but it's just like, it just feels very hateful and just like, it doesn't like its characters and I don't understand. <laughs> like when the black character rapes Miss Wyckoff, I'm just like, why is this happening? I don't understand. And also this character really hasn't been in the movie for the first hour, which is also weird because this moment defines the whole movie, at least in terms of how it is now sold currently on like Tubi or on IMDb. Like this plot point is what they say the whole movie is about. <clears throat> and that is Which what is the- weird because <laughs> that it was... It's hidden when it was originally released, <laughs> but it was they didn't let the audience know at all. So, so that, you went into a movie theater, you're sitting there for an hour thinking it's then, one movie. Yeah. yeah. And and it's a horrible scene. It is very upsetting. And then the fact that she ends up being okay with it is even more upsetting and confusing. Where I'm just like, I don't understand. And it just is like the extreme version of that trope that I've seen in kind of action movies where the dude like starts kissing a lady and she doesn't want it. And then she's okay with it or whatever. She's charmed by, you know, whoever creepy guy. (laughs) I don't know. I just, I just left it thinking like, I don't understand what this movie's point is. I don't get it. It feels icky to me. And I get that it's trying to talk about kind of the dark underbelly of America. And there's definitely like, there's no mistake that it's called freedom, you know, 
But oh, yeah, the Freedom, way Kansas is yeah. the town that she teaches. But the in. way yeah. it's handled to me just felt really poor. Where I just like, didn't get the character shifts. It didn't make sense to me. That I wonder if the nuances are there in the book because in the movie it just felt kind of like it was just trying to be shocking, and it just left me reeling. And I just was totally confused as to what the heck was going on in the last forty minutes of this movie. Well, I could tell you one thing. I haven't read the whole book, but I got I did get the book and. In the first, so basically the end of the movie is the beginning of the book. So the movie begins, Miss Wyckoff arrives at her home. She gets out of a cab and she looks down at this graffiti on the street. I guess I can say it It says, Miss Wyckoff fucks N-words. Uh, and, and then it cuts to her flashback of how we got to this point. Yeah. In the movie, I mean, in the book, it goes through the end of the movie where she goes inside and she's now having to leave her boarding house and she has her interaction with her best friend who is who is racist and has rejected her. And she's thinking about leaving. And she so basically at the at the beginning of the book, it relates this whole story and then. It sort of runs parallel as she's leaving. She's remembering all of the steps along the way. And it's told from Miss Wyckoff's point of view. Yeah. So the movie changes that around. And I feel like that leads to the, I think, the the jarring impact of what happens halfway through the movie because we haven't been prepared for it. Mm -hmm. So that's a major difference and that might you know that i don't know if there's a way to do this because it is i hear what you're saying it's it's <laughs> it's terrifying but it's also i feel like it's probably on, more honest about what the 50s were like if you weren't a white guy than american graffiti or happy days or you know so many movies that celebrate the 50s so i feel like that's it's hard for me to say that the film is racist or misogynist i feel like the film is dealing with racism and misogyny and it's doing it from a 1979 headspace as opposed to a 2019 headspace yeah but but how many times have we talked about films where I say that something's offensive in a movie we're looking at? It was like, well, that was 30 years ago. We didn't know. <laughs> it's like, well, I think the main thing is that there is no attempt to understand the motivations or the thinking behind Rafe, who's the the black athlete who commits the rape. Yeah. So we never see his point of view. That's to me, the biggest weakness in the film, but I think it's also a weakness. I haven't read the book, but since the story is told all from Miss Wyckoff's point of view, they would they would have had to invent that. And if they were making the movie now, they probably would invent that. Although it would be hard to figure out what, what would justify it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it is... <laughs> It is very, it is very challenging. It is very difficult. Yeah. I, but I don't find. It's funny because you find you thought the first half was okay. I thought that casting Robert Vaughn and Donald Pleasance in the two sort of helper men roles 
was either uh, an intentional effort to make the world seem even more nightmarish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like if those if those have been if those roles have been played, like if the if this Jewish psychiatrist had been played by Judd Hirsch. And the gynecologist, former high school classmate, had been played by, I don't know, even Ned Beatty. Ned Beatty. Doesn't that, <laughs> I was going to say Robert Redford, but it wouldn't even. Actually, he's supposed to be a handsome guy. Like the yeah. the he he was sort of like the football star or whatever. So yeah, if it was Robert Redford and Judd Hirsch. I feel like the movie it would be a very different movie. But they chose two of the creepiest possible yeah. people to yeah. play these roles. I think that must be totally intentional. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I, I think it's poor, it's demonstrating how misogynistic those times were. It's hard to say that then the, the film is misogynistic. Yeah, I don't know. I just I think this the just in that last 40 minutes things got really confusing for me. I don't I don't understand like why would this character be okay with this? Well, it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> okay, so let's go back. So through the first half of the movie, there are two problems she has. One is that her school is very conservative and she feels that it's important to desegregate the school and fight for these black students to be able to interact with the white students at this high school in Kansas in the 50s or not interact, but be in class with them and and have all the have access to the same education that the white students have and that she is she's a virgin and she is really breaking down. She's she's passing out. She's uncontrollably crying. She's smashing windows. And it's recommended that she go to see a doctor. She goes to see the Robert Vaughn gynecologist. He finds out, and this is when we find out that she's a virgin. He suggests she see this psychiatrist. And she's like, he's Jewish. Are you okay with that? He's like, of course, of course, of course. He's like, okay. I can't tell. Like, it's sort of like he's kind of being liberal in the sense of like, I, you don't have a problem with Jews, do you? But there's also a part of him like, maybe he does. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just checking uh, if someone else is like him. <laughs> and Donald Pleasance is... I, maybe he is Jewish. I don't know. But he is. he definitely reads as way more of a Nazi than... than <laughs> Like he's not what I think of as like the Jewish psychologist. He's he's very creepy in Germany, uh, Germanish. Uh, so, and then he's encouraging her to have an affair or find a boyfriend. In the meantime, there's this bus driver who's sort of coming on to her, and she's starting to get excited about maybe she's gonna get together with him. And then he just takes off, right? Like she shows up to meet him. She finally decides she's gonna meet him. She gets some fancy lingerie and she's going to meet him. She tells the, uh, she, I guess she tells her the psychologist psychiatrist this after the fact, but she shows up and he's not there. He's left town. There's an old bus driver now and he, she's never going to get to see this guy. So she has been, she is looking to find a way to stop being a virgin, which is very, which is sort of impossible in this town for her. She's too old to sort of go out and date. She lives in this boarding house and every like all the women, the women don't. None of the women have cars. They're just very, very under the thumb yeah. of the world. And so how is she going to get laid, basically? And in that context, I think what the film, what the book 
what the screenplay are trying to say is that she needed to have someone take charge of that situation. And whether, like, again, to me, I watch it, it is horrific. But I can also see a situation, I've known situations where something bad happened to me, and then later on, in retrospect, I look back and think, well, if that bad thing didn't happen to me, then I wouldn't have done all this other healing that I needed to do. And maybe I even brought that, whether I, I didn't ask for that, but on some more spiritual level, I was calling for that bad thing. Like, I, like I don't like getting punched, but that person who punched me made me learn something about standing up for myself. Or maybe I just needed to get punched, like, once in my life. Like, and feel what that's like. And know, like, oh. You know, so that's why, again, I go back to how this film is... I think probably more important than we give it credit for because as we'll get into next week, we're going to be dealing with another film that deals with some of these topics. Uh, Jane Campion's in the cut. And I think it's a much better film, but maybe not quite as courageous or uh, prescient a film because I feel like we haven't caught up to what this film is trying to express. And maybe you and I as men, and as white men, particularly, will never understand it. I don't know about you, but when I watched the the assault scene, like throughout the whole movie, I had this fear for Miss Wyckoff and for uh, the communist teacher, not communist, but the teacher teaching uh, Karl Marx in her class. Like anyone who was under that kind of oppressive uh, thought control. But... In the actual assault scene, I had to turn it off because I felt so worried for both of those people. Uh, I felt worried for Miss Wyckoff because she's being assaulted in her room, in her classroom. And I felt nervous for the guy doing the assaulting because he's a black guy raping a white woman in a classroom in the 1950s. And she's and he's when he gets caught. It's not just going to be bad for him. It'll be terrible for him. It'll be terrible for her, but it'll also be terrible for the black community of Freedom, Kansas, because is is my feeling watching it. Like, nothing good can come from this. And who knows? Maybe there's also a part of me somewhere deep down that even, like, I hope it's not there, but that just... Like would I have would I be would I have an easier time watching it? But if, if it was a white guy raping Miss Wyckoff, I would. It'd be easier for me to think of that guy as just a horrible villain, and not as a victim of, of an oppressive system acting out in a terrible way because everything in that situation is fucked. But uh, anyway, I don't know where <laughs> your turn to talk. And I think what upset me even more was the continuing way he treated her and the way that they have sex and how violent it is and how awful it is. You know? Like, the crescendo being over the hot radiator as she's burning her flesh. And this whole time, I'm just like constantly, every 10 minutes of this last part of this movie is being traumatized, being like, what? what is going on? Why are they doing this to poor Miss Wyckoff? What is this movie? This is like, I spit on your grave or something. <laughs> it just felt like the worst form of exploitation. I just was so confused as to what the like what I'm supposed to be feeling by that point, other than like, this is horrible. But then it was confusing because she 
seem to be kind of into it. <clears throat> well, uh, so can you can you see like can you see that? She, okay, so she is trying to lose her virginity. That is the first half. Of, first half of the movie is a woman wants to not being a virgin in her forties is making her crazy, like making her unable to just have a a dinner with friends without completely melting down or watch a piano recital without completely breaking down. And so the movie tells us that this is her big problem. So can you see that on some level, even though like not to justify what happened to her, but on some level for her, she has solved the problem that was that rape solves the problem that was set up for her in the first half of the movie. I, yeah, I guess, but <laughs> isn't there a better way to solve that problem? Oh, well, maybe <laughs> maybe guess. not in 1951 Freedom, Kansas for this woman. Of course there's a better way. But and I think the, the problem, too, yeah. is the movie doesn't... The movie seems to think that it's okay that it, that's how it solved the problem. At least that's how it plays to me, of like, this really? happened to her. Great. Like, she seems like it's fine and because she's okay with it until it doesn't work out for her, until they get caught. And then it's not okay. Then she has to move away. But like, I just feel like it's missing. Like the movie's missing some piece where I'm supposed to like, at least have some sort of moral compass telling me like, this is actually really fucked up and this is wrong. It just felt like it was kind of like the, the mon like when she gets into it and it has that kind of montage of her like kissing him. And it's kind of like this romantic music and these fades. I'm just like, what the hell is this movie trying to tell me? I don't understand. <laughs> Yes, I, 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 well, (laughs) so do you see the Lynchian qualities of this film? Um, I didn't really think of that when watching it, because I feel like in his movies, when bad things happen to people, you know, it's bad. And when the bad people are doing it, you know, those are the bad people. Wait a second. And it's very, it's much more clear The Dennis Hopper is not a good guy. And you're not supposed to have any sympathy towards that character in Blue Velvet at all. Okay, back up. What about Wild at Heart? What about Wild at Heart? The beginning of Wild at Heart, Nicolas Cage... Beats a guy's head in? No, beats a black man's head in, who in the script is... He doesn't doesn't rape uh, Laura Dern, but he approaches Laura Dern with with the same kind of like... I'm a scary black man who's going to get you, you know, like, like who's going to wave his dick in your face. And then Nicolas Cage beats him to a bloody pulp. And we're supposed to think that's cool. How is that less offensive, less racist than good luck, Miss Wyckoff? Maybe it's the same. I, that's what I mean. I, I guess <laughs> I guess. And I guess that's what I'm saying is is that's why I think it's Lynchian, because if you're going to look at the sort of psychic underbelly of America, it's a lot of rape and a lot of racism. And I would also say a lot of anti-Semitism and a lot of trying to clamp down. It's like this is this is blue velvet. It's just we never get to see the underbelly. It's just we just see what's on top. But this sort of staid 1950s niceness 
is a cover for something very ugly. And that's what this film. Well, I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's where this film is reaching. I don't feel like it gets there because again, it's 1979 and it's adapting a work from 1951. And so. Yeah. Maybe if it wasn't a TV director and was like a better filmmaker, it would have worked better for me. I just feel like it's, it's missing. There's something, there's a touch missing here that isn't quite delivering its message to me. Like there's, I'm not, I, I con- I'm not connected. Like there's something that's like, I feel like, cause to me, I watch this movie and it seems like we're just watching a lot of horrible things happen to this lady. She seems like a good person. And then it's just, we're just going to watch her get beaten into the ground. The end. <laughs> so in a way it kind of reminded me of like some of those Lars von Trier movies, like dancer in the dark or something where it's like, we're going to see this beautiful thing just get pulverized the end. And I kind of left being like, who wants to watch this? Who is this for? I don't understand. Like who's going to watch this movie and be like, this is great. I don't think anyone is. I don't know. It's, well, I don't, it's, I, <laughs> I would be like, we, neither of us is a woman. So we, we don't know, but I would really be curious because there is, it's a very dicey area to talk about, but again, we're going to have to talk about it next week when we do in the cut Yeah, is that, there is a place within fantasy where having a man force the situation can be a source of can be a source of fantasy for women and that doesn't mean that women want to be raped or that you know just like i suppose if there are that there are men who may enjoy the fantasy of raping a woman who would also not rape a woman. Uh, Our fantasy lives are like, there were some who would say that if you think about something, that means that you're guilty of it. But I, you know, I I take a more uh, psychological view to it, which is that when we deny ourselves the opportunity to fantasize as broadly as, as we might, that's when these behaviors start to leak into other aspects of our lives in ways we not may not may not be even aware of. Um, so, I, it's I think too. It's like even though Polly Platt wrote this thing, part of my distrust is that it's directed by a man. It's based on a book written by a man. So, like as opposed to in the cut, which we'll talk about next week which is produced by women, written by women, like directed by, like, I feel like there's more, I trust the viewpoint of that movie more, even though it gets dark, you know, just whereas this one, I'm kind of like a little distrustful of the intentions of some of these people or distrustful of their viewpoint. Well, yeah, we could say the same thing about Brown Bunny. We should see like the Cheryl Ladd's (laughs) version of that film, but like it's the, the themes that it touches on are, I just feel like are all really important. And I guess the fact that the film is so unrelentingly bleak. It's just ugly. It's an ugly movie. <laughs> I feel like that is, I think that's part of, that's a strength of the creators that they didn't try and make it pretty. They didn't have needle drops. They didn't have, they didn't try to make this prettier and nicer than it is. I mean, 
you could say that it is because her reaction is to. I think her reaction is very natural. She fought to desegregate the school. She really doesn't want to see anything bad happen to these black students. She also really wanted to lose her virginity. And she got like, and that's what, and that's what she got. And like, there's a way at the end of the movie, yes, all this bad stuff happens to her, but you could also look at it as she's getting out of freedom, Kansas. And she has solved the issue. Like, she is no longer breaking down. I mean, she's going to have other trauma to deal with. I mean, do you really think that the trauma of the rape is worse than the trauma that she's been experiencing for the last 20, the low level, uh, just women abuse from society that she has been experiencing her whole life? Uh, I mean, it's pretty bad. <laughs> it's I, I'm. It's <laughs> like definitely that, that'll I, give you some PTSD you know, for the rest yeah, of your life. Yeah, but so would you know, Robert like, Vaughn, like creepily he, looking at you while he sticks a speculum up yeah, you when he's your I, high school. Like, I I keep hitting on this, but the idea that your high school classmate is your gynecologist, yeah, and it's Robert Vaughn, is that's terrorizing. Everything in this movie is is that. But I, I don't think it. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's also just that weird thing that I don't like in certain action movies, where to have a lady be tough, she has to be abused. She can't just be tough like Sylvester Stallone would be in a movie. Like there's something about a woman protagonist has to really suffer on screen to get to the point of learning something or, or getting tough, and you never see that in movies about men or barely ever. Are, are you kidding like, me? Wait, <laughs> Celeste, if Sylvester Stallone got tough. Because he, if he's Rocky, he got tough because he was a, he was a poor guy in New York who had to work for the mob. If it's Rambo, it's because he got abused as a soldier and turned into this killing machine. If it's Wolverine, he got abused. If it's Batman, he got abused. <laughs> but like, it's like, all but, these guys but, have abuse stories that lead. But them usually to... in movies, they're off screen. They're not talked about. One is about men, but with the women, it's always like showing you this horrible turmoil they have to suffer through, and that's when it feels kind of exploitive to me. You know. But do you think that but, it's also because women are like, as in general, women are more interested in people's backstories and sort of their emotional journey and what they got them there. And men are more like, Oh yeah, some shit Get happened. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> like he's a badass, And like, all we need to know, all he needs to do is say he was numb. Like, yeah. Oh, we get it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't want to, yeah. Don't, don't, don't tell me about all of, yeah. We just, uh, so I, I think that's, I hear what you're saying as a dynamic, but I also feel like, I don't feel like that's really true. That's the case here. It's not like she had to become a badass. She just, she had to overcome the oppression of the fifties. And I, but it's only 1951. So it means there's nine more years of oppression. She's going to have to deal with no matter where she moves. Not, not, wait, not, well, actually, I don't know if that's the case. I mean, that, so when, when she gets fired by the principal who is, it's like the most sympathetic firing ever. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, and I think that might be the clip that I use uh, to, to intro this. Uh, he's like, oh, I know a guy who runs a school in New Jersey. And, you know, in New Jer- like in other places, bigger cities, people are more 
welcoming of difference. So you do get a sense to move to a better town than this horrible Midwest town. I think Freedom, Kansas might be not a great the place. The worst town in America. <laughs> <laughs> What's also funny about that principal is that he kind of looks like the good version of Donald Pleasant. It's like they have the same build yeah. and the same bald. And one is com- comes off as creepy, and the other one, played by Dana Elkar, who you might remember from MacGyver, comes off as like really trying. Like even with the the teacher being accused of a com- being a communist. He doesn't like he seems like he has to fire him because the PTA is on his back, but he's willing to work with Miss Wyckoff on how to figure out a way to not do that. And then they do in a great scene where she gives this speech at, at this assembly. Yeah. And uh, and he really oh, I does. Liked it. There's a great scene in it. I'm glad you had, there was at least one scene. Oh, in no, this there, movie you liked. Uh, we can talk about the stuff I like about this movie. <laughs> eventually in this episode okay but 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 i just yeah it's i think he he's he he's an interesting character the mr havermeyer the principal because he i think in other movies would be equally creepy like that would like there's no mistake that that part wasn't cast by a creepy character actor you know but usually the principal of a school is like the ultimate like sadist or taskmaster or just like really not having, you know, whatever bad things are going on. And in a way he is, but it seems more like he's a weak man who caves into the town's opinion that he might be fine with everything that's going on in terms of like what the other people are not comfortable with, but he just kind of has to do it because he's a weak man in charge of the school, but that he has to answer to the school board and the PTA and, you know, like the whole town. Uh, I really like that character a lot. And I really loved the whole side. I wish the whole movie was about her and that sad bus driver. And that scene, <laughs> that, that that dialogue they have at the diner is really good. Um, the scene where he just kind of lays out for her that, like, yeah, I'm married. I, I cheat on her, but, like, that I think you're great. You know, but you know you'll get with me. And then he just comes off as so sad and desperate in, this, in a different way that she is. But you almost can see a connection could have happened there. But then again, he is also kind of a coward and his character leaves his wife and doesn't even meet up with Miss Wyckoff. He just leaves town. <laughs> he, just realize, yeah. he realizes, oh, wait a minute. I don't have to meet with any of these people in freedom. I can go somewhere else. <laughs> I could be a bus driver anywhere. Yeah, I don't have to be, don't have to be here. Uh, and that scene, that scene's really good. Um, yeah. And I mean, like the acting in this movie is great. And I think that that's part of the confusing thing for me is that like, like Anne Haywood is fantastic in this movie and it's a really good performance. And the guy who plays Rafe, John Lafayette, he's really good and everybody's really good. I'm just so confused by the intentions of the character. I can't think of the last movie I've seen where I watch it and I'm very upset by it. I mean, maybe a Paul Verhoeven movie. (laughs) I remember a lot of my reactions to his movies initially are, fuck this movie. I hate these people. I don't understand what this movie's trying to tell me. Why is Neil Patrick Harris dressed up as a Nazi? And then the more I think about it, the more I understand what it's trying to say. And maybe I'm just, this movie's too fresh and I'm having the reaction that Paulie Platt and the director and the author wanted me to have, which is, I hate America. I hate this town. I hate these people. <laughs> I don't understand what's happening. They need to burn freedom to the ground. 
The town needs to, she needs to leave. At the end of the movie, she should have kept going. She should have thrown a match out the window and he's watched the town explode behind her, just turning to ash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, and like, I think it's also hard for me because like this, because it's such a tough movie uh, to sit through. It's hard for me to recommend to people because I know I can't think of anyone that would enjoy watching this. Well, like, you couldn't even sit through it the first time. No, no, I couldn't. It's <laughs> too, it was, like, and it I was... only sat through it because for this episode, I think if I was if I was watching this, just watching it, I would have turned it off and I would have never finished it. Yeah, because it's yeah. too tough. It's too tough, and it's tough in a very complicated way that I can't quite figure out what it's trying to tell me. But can't you, I, I think you're on the verge of acknowledging this, that there's a possibility that that means that it is a great film. Not a, maybe not a good film like, oh, I can wreck. Hey, everyone should check out Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff. Great times. But if you want to, like, this is taking on things that American films don't really take on. And so when you see it, it's jarring. And for me, I probably would have written it off, but if it weren't that Polly Platt's name was there as the screenwriter, and I'd be like, okay, well, I gotta, I gotta give this a little bit more attention, a little bit more benefit of the doubt. And then when I went and watched Pretty Baby, another movie I've not seen because it looks like it'll upset me greatly. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I w I would argue that. <laughs> You said that that, that uh, Good Luck Miss Wyckoff would be better if it was made by a better director, but I feel like the weakness of uh, of Pretty Baby is that it is made by a better director, and so Louis Mal makes a story about the uh, about a young girl growing up in a house of prostitution and being brought into that world at a very young age. Uh, makes it look nicer. I think the thing that's good about Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff is that it is so painful. And I think it helps, too, that this movie clearly feels sort of lower budgeted. Like, it doesn't have... Like, I think it works for it in that it doesn't have the gloss of what a movie normally would. It's a period piece. And it feel, yeah. it has that kind of TV movie quality based on the director, you know? So it doesn't... Mm -hmm. It's not very showy. It's very much just, like going along with the script, you know, it doesn't, it does no like huge flourishes from like an auteur, you know, like this feels very matter of fact in the way that it's delivering. And maybe that's part of the punch. Like maybe that's what makes it tough is it's kind of the filmmaking itself is a little cold. And so it's not adding or saying anything emotionally about what's going on. You, all you have is the actors and what they're doing and what they're saying, which I think makes it a harder, harder pill to swallow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I but I that's what I wonder. Like if it had the Lynchian flourishes, would it be it might be a more enjoyable movie, but it would it be a more honest, a more dangerous, a more important film? Maybe not. Maybe not. Uh I really it's I would so you talk about recommending it. I would recommend that someone who wants to Explore the life and work of Polly Platt should watch a double feature of Pretty Baby and Good Luck Miss Wyckoff and try and make sense of it because 
clearly there's a darkness within her <laughs> that well why why did she not make any more movies did she exhaust herself from this like this dark terror this dark sexual territory and then just never wanted to write a movie again like did she write books after like, i don't i know very little about polly platt in terms of her as a creative only as like a producer you know or working on movies not as a as a writer so, well yeah she well she basically you know she gave her let's back up first of all it was very hard for women to become directors yes. or produ- like to get like she had to fight to be uh, included as a member of the producers guild yeah even after her work on those three bogdanovich bogdanovich classics uh the the last picture show paper moon and what's up doc and in i re- i would recommend what i will recommend everyone should listen to the Karina Longworth podcast uh, season on Polly Platt. I think it's a, it's, I love her podcast and I think that's one of the best seasons just in terms of usually she's telling interesting stories and unheard stories about people we know a lot about, but this is the one I think where she's, doing a deep dive on someone that we don't know nearly enough about. And in the podcast, she goes through how many times Polly Platt tried to get something of her own done and then was stopped and then chose to instead give her energy to films that were already happening. I mean, she decided to take a job working on working for James L. Brooks or working for Wes a- working on the Wes Anderson film, uh, Bottle Rocket, which was actually part of the James L. Brooks universe. Is there uh, but a there- script that she wrote that never got made that could be made still? I wonder, I... I wonder and I wonder like if they kind of go in the same dark territory as these two movies. We don't, we, well, we do not know and we may never know. <laughs> Time passes. <laughs> Okay, uh, I just got to jump in here with a quick clarification. I've been saying throughout this episode that the only two Polly Platt screenplays are Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff and Pretty Baby. She also contributed to the screenplay for A Map of the World from 1999, one of three credited screenwriters on that film. She wrote a teleplay for a short called Lieberman in Love, and she is credited with creating the story for targets from Peter Bogdanovich in 1968. Okay. Back to the show. Uh, Oh, interesting trivia, which we haven't mentioned yet. There is an edited version of this movie that was released called the sin. And I believe it's on the vinegar syndrome, Blu-ray. And I guess it takes out all the upsetting stuff. And the movie makes even less sense. <laughs> Let's go back. It does not take out all the upsetting stuff. Did you it watch takes it? Out, yes. It it takes out the upsetting stuff in the, like, it takes out a big chunk of the assault. Okay. Uh, but he, st- he still slaps her around. Uh, it's still clear what's going to happen. And it doesn't take out any of the misogyny or the anti-communism and the subtle, like, the but film still- is still... But this Pretty is a, oppressive. an hour, 45 minutes down to 80 minutes. Like, that's a lot to take out. Um, was that also released in theaters or was that like the video version? Like, what? I feel was like that, that was like the four. T- yeah. TV, I don't even the know. The TV version. The TV version. And also, The film. Sin is not as good of a title as Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff, which also sounds like 
a sitcom <laughs> doesn't yeah. good morning miss bliss <laughs> like, yeah it's, it doesn't seem like the movie you're about to get um <laughs> you know i was in good morning miss bliss and it was pretty terrible so. <laughs> were you a bad guy <laughs> yeah i was yeah. a bully actually holy shit i have a scene a bully scene with a teacher alone in her classroom in Good Morning, Miss Bliss. But I, spoiler alert, <laughs> I do not rape Haley Mills in Good Morning, Miss Bliss. Good. In fact, uh, she, yeah. she helps me to learn how to read. <laughs> Maybe, can the clip of that exist that we can also put on the page for this to compare and contrast the two <laughs> good, you know, Miss... Uh, oh, yeah, uh, sure. But... <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry. Don't... Don't put me in the situation where, like, look at the nice white guy. This is how you treat a teacher, not how this scary black man does. Uh, uh, no, no. Uh, let's talk about the the Rafe character. His name is Rafe, and he commits a rape. That's uh, it's good thinking, William Inch. You know, you just, uh, you know, it's all connected there. But uh, so you say that he's not you. You didn't rewatch it because if you rewatch it, there are sort of seeds planted throughout the film of awareness about him. Again, we don't really get his point of view. He's there kind of like cleaning up afterwards and her just kind of being like, oh, don't erase this or do that. And that's kind of he's it's it's crazy. For the first hour, you kind of don't think about him. You just kind of think of him as he's somebody who works at the school or whatever. And then when that when that turns an hour into the movie, a whole hour. You know, there's a whole hour of this movie before anything, like before you really even see this guy's face. And then it just turns his character, like even in that scene, starts out really nice. And then it just turns dark so suddenly. Like, that's another thing. It just happens so fast. Like, it just like it just seems to really come out of left field, which I think also kind of threw me off. Like, I thought there would be more. There's knowing this was in the movie just from the description, I thought there'd be more of a buildup to like why this would happen, but it really just kind of just happens. Um, which is, I think more of the reason why I'm upset too, because it just really gives you no time to prepare. It just, ha- you just upset. Which what- is probably the way Miss Wyckoff. Feels. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure that's intentional, uh, but he's a complicated character. It ends up that he's not really of age. Like he shouldn't really be in high school that he's like 24 I think they mm-hmm. say, and that uh, none of the other custodial people like him. The elders like, oh yeah, we don't really <laughs> trust that guy. <laughs> but then there's this whole thing of, but he's winning like for the football team or whatever. So like they don't like, the, so everyone kind of tolerates his bad behavior. It's a, there's a lot of Which, weird stuff going on. Yeah, I mean, uh, who, who can relate to a situation where uh, successful athletes are given a pass for sexual assault? I mean, that's something that's only that only exists in the 50s, right? No, that's happening always. <laughs> okay, sorry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, so it's it's an it's a complicated character, and then it gets more complicated when they kind of end up forming a weird sadomasochistic sort of relationship for the last half of the movie. Um, yeah, it's just it's. Yeah, but that actor's really I've never I don't think I've seen him in anything else before. Have you? Like he was good. Let's see. John Lafayette. I feel like I looked him up and he had been in other things. Um Well, he was working right up through 2015. He has been working steadily. He was in Starman the TV's lots of TV work. 
lots of TV work, trying to be a, you know, being a black actor in the 80s in Hollywood. He played a lot of supporting roles in a lot of TV shows, had a recurring role as a paramedic on Hill Street Blues. Um, I am not seeing. Oh, uh, he was in Monkey Trouble. <laughs> did you show that at the the monkey uh film festival you we, ran did, we did we did we yeah, did show I monkey like trouble yeah 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 um <laughs> doc, he was in dr doolittle in 1998 playing a reverend yeah yeah, yeah he, mostly his, character work but this was one of the first things he did like the first thing he did was king from 1978 which you talked about in our premiere episode yeah then he was in an after-school special then he was in Roots, The Next Generation, and then this. Um, <clears throat> and then yeah. didn't really get a lot, lot of big work. Like, a lot of work after that where he's just playing someone without a name. You know, like so-and-so number one and so-and-so number two and cop number three and paramedic. So, like, it's... But he seemed to keep working and then is in tons of mov movies and TV. Like, he's in Clear and Present Danger. He's in uh, a civil action so, like, he's just been consistently working. And then, yeah, the last credit is as a reoccurring character on the show The Following from 2013 from 2015 as Deputy Marshal Scott Turner. Um, what do you think Dep Deputy Marshal Scott Turner would think of Rafe? He would be against it and he would yeah. throw his self in jail from this movie. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's yeah, this is a tough movie, but. You know, the more we talk about it, it is like it's that thing we always talk about where just because something's ugly and upsetting doesn't mean it should be ignored and thrown away. Maybe it is worth talking about. I really didn't want to talk about this. Like I when I called you, I was gonna be like, I don't think we can do this <laughs> episode. You yeah, I don't know if this is gonna work. I think this is gonna upset people. I don't know even know how we can talk about this or sell this movie to anybody without everyone just being like, fuck you. But then what's also interesting is I came from watching it being like, people must hate this movie. And it's gotten, it was released by Vinegar Syndrome on Blu-ray like three years ago with a bunch of special features. And like now people are slowly revisiting it, which I think is really fascinating. Um, but what's interesting is I read like a review of that DVD and nowhere did the reviewer mention Polly Platt's name at all. It just mentioned that it was based but, on this, well, based that's on how the book, world is wrong. Based the on this book and directed by this guy, but they didn't say that she wrote it as if that person didn't even know who she was. I'm not going to say who wrote this, but that's weird. Was it on the Roger Ebert site? <laughs> no, it was not. Okay, good. We can't blame old Ebert for this one, but, <laughs> but it's just, yeah, that's strange because, and you are right. It's, it is also strange that like kind of, she's being talked about a lot these days more like she's kind of getting a whole i think because of that podcast but like people are starting to be like oh she's this sort of overlooked great you know film person and it is funny but totally understanding why this is skipped over because who wants to dwell on this movie it is very dark uh, i get it but there's also kind of a weird double standard because people are okay with talking about pretty baby which is upsetting in its own way so <laughs> I w honestly, why are people okay talking about that movie but not this movie is it the racial thing is that it like you just think that underage sex stuff is as upsetting to talk about for people or as not wanting to deal with it or is it i really think it's because louis mall well there's a couple of things first of all i think louis mall directs it with all this soft light and it's very 
it feels more, I don't know, tinted by time and artistry and, and also probably just the, the stardom of Brooke Shields. There's something like that maybe protects the film in some way, like that she is, she has maintained this presence in the cinematic mind in a way that Anne Haywood hasn't. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's, I personally think that Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff is a, a movie that I am more, I will recommend Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff more than I'm going to recommend Pretty <laughs> Baby to people. Uh, I, but I would, but I think that, like I said, that as a double feature, they, though the, the films together and knowing that Polly Platt is the writer on both. I think it makes us ask some questions that may be uncomfortable to ask, but I feel like as, and as we're going to get into within the cut, maybe those are the questions that Jane Campion is seeking to answer in her film work in, and because she has more agency and more control and just is it's, it's her project. Those films are her, her films are maybe more like what Polly Platt would have been able to make if she had been in charge. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I I would love to know if there's anyone out there who has insight into what Polly Platt thought about this. All I know is from Karina Longworth is that she didn't write about it much and she didn't feel like she did. She wasn't happy with the, the film. I wonder why she wasn't happy with like, what about the film? She that is what happy I, with? exactly. That's what I would really, she's that's the what only name with. on as a writer. And like, even in my research, I didn't see anyone listed as rewriting it. Maybe the director did. So I wonder, or if she was hoping like when she wrote it, that there would be something that the director would add a little more. Whereas this movie doesn't seem to want to do that. So I don't, yeah, I wonder yeah, or one, or if it was just a traumatic experience to write something like this, to live with these characters, and then in the end, you just kind of don't want to be there anymore, <laughs> which also makes sense. Like that, I, I can also see that happening to a creative. Like if this is where you're dwelling, maybe you don't want to dwell there anymore, and you want to move past it because it is sort of like tapping into some ugly things in your in your psyche, you know, that you don't want to face, or you're willing to face while you're making this movie, but then you want to like move move on or run away from it. I don't know. It would have it would be interesting to hear why exactly she kind of distanced herself from this. Yeah. Yeah. I uh I wish Polly Platt was available to us to ask these questions and I wish she'd written about it in her journal cuz uh yeah, cuz we are left with that mystery. Just a couple of other points that I think are worth mentioning about the film, some of the cast uh Dorothy Malone as the sort of the worst of Miss Wyckoff's fellow teachers. Mm -hmm. She's great. <laughs> and Doris Roberts. Uh, A young Doris Roberts. I can't yes. tell. Like it's this, I guess this is her young. She still looks about 55 like she always does. Uh, and it was fun to also see Morticia Adams uh, in the movie. Caroline um, Jones. Caroline Jones. <laughs> Oh, 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 and the R.G. Armstrong, another creepy character actor being sort of the patriarch of the of the boarding house that she that Miss Wyckoff lives at. 
and him being very confused as to why the, all these women are giggling about Marlon Brando's body. <laughs> as he should. <laughs> well, can, actually, Ed, let's let's go back for a second. Have you ever, because the only thing I can relate to is that I have definitely been in relationships with women who were re- who were abusive to me, but who also sort of similarly, like as a a guy who doesn't want to make who was raised to like be very careful about not making women uncomfortable. It's I've always, especially when I was younger, have found it impossible to initiate sexual interactions or to, you know, to like be the one like, so the women that I ended up with were women who approached me and let made it very clear. I want you. And in some cases, those women did not treat me very nicely, but they gave me access to sexual interaction that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I wasn't (laughs) a woman in the 1950s. And so I wonder, have you ever had that experience where you put up with an abusive relationship because a woman threw herself at you and was, was giving you a sexual interaction that you wouldn't have had otherwise? (laughs) Uh, no, <laughs> I think I don't think so. I was a pretty boy. All I could, you know, when I was a teenager, I and a young man, I was. I guess I I had that going for me. No longer, folks. Don't worry. I'm not bragging. I'm just regretting that I, you know. Anyway, uh, that's that's part of how I feel like I can relate to this. Is that I have definitely put up with stuff. I w- when I was younger, there was stuff I put up with that I wouldn't put up with now, and that I would definitely be like that's abusive that's an that's going that's crossing my boundaries in a way i will not accept i'm leaving my answer is no that i didn't when i was younger um and i just feel like that dynamic is at play here anyway uh i guess i'm unique in that sense maybe (laughs) some of the listeners know what i'm talking about if not you can write to us at contact at the world is wrong podcast.com and tell me that I am totally unique in that experience. Um, no, I don't think you are. I've, I've heard other people have the same kind of relationship. Men and, and we wi- didn't men and women. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just lucky that I've always, always met very nice people. So, <laughs> and yet we lived in the same town. How, how are you meaning? Like, I feel like I might've met some of the same people and they weren't nice to me. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, well, let's let's go back to this cast. So uh, we didn't mention Earl Holloman is the actor who plays the bus driver. He's great. And have you ever seen Bus Stop? The no. film Bus Stop? No. Do you know the actor Don Murray? No. Boy. Okay. Well, uh, those who have seen Bus Stop and are familiar with the actor Don, Don Murray, I do feel like there's some sort of connection between the bus driver character in good luck, Miss Wyckoff and that character in bus stop, which was also written by William Inge. Perhaps that was just a happenstance of casting, or that was something that was intentional on the part of the director. And then did you pick up on the Jocelyn Brando thing that she was playing Mrs. Hemmings? No, I've never, I never even heard of Jocelyn Brando. Oh yeah. I didn't know he had a sister that was in movies. 
he most definitely um, did. And I guess that Inge wrote another book that also takes place in freedom. And I'd be curious to hear what that is about and like what, because I guess this is one of two books that he kind of set there. So clearly he's trying to build something <laughs> around this strange town <laughs> in Kansas. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd be, I'd be curious to see if that was a, a, a book that, uh, that what, what the plot was. Inge wrote two novels, both set in the fictional town of Freedom, Kansas. In Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff, high school Latin teacher Evelyn Wyckoff loses her job because she has an affair with the school's black janitor. Not exactly how I'd describe it. The novel's themes include spencerhood, blah, blah, blah. My Son is a Splendid Driver is an autobiographical novel that traces the Hanson family from 1919 into the second half of the 20th century. And I guess that's the second Freedom, Kansas novel from William Inge. Oh. It's, uh, it's also kind of interesting that on the DVD, one of the bonus features is Shirley Knight, the actress, talking about William Inge festivals that she ran. Hmm. And I had Shirley Knight in my mind because... In my uh, several long conversations with Wendell B. Harris Jr. for our episode last week, he suggested that I watch the, uh, the film Dutchman featuring Shirley Knight and Al Freeman Jr. And that has similar touches on similar topics. Hmm. The dynamics between a white woman and a black man in in Dutchman, which I recommend, which you can find online, I can, I've, at least on YouTube, you can find a, a version of it. It's about a white woman who is coming on really strong to this black man on a subway. And he's, you know, he's obviously, he's intimidated and aroused and trying to figure out how to navigate this, uh, this situation. It's based upon a play by... Amiri Baraka, who uh, was originally named uh, Leroy Jones, Everett Leroy Jones, or Leroy Jones, he changed his name to Amiri Baraka, and wrote the play Dutchman, hmm. and uh, and yeah, so there's just something about like there's some connection: Shirley Knight, William Inge, Dutchman, interracial trauma. If you if you are like me and you found this film challenging in a way that you made you want to explore beyond it, Dutchman is probably a really good example of, even though the film doesn't give us Rafe's point of view of at least the black man's point of view of fraught interactions between black men and white women in a time of a great deal of, oppression and judgment about those relationships so hmm. that's another another piece of this too it's also ponder. worth noting that william inge killed himself soon after the publication of this book so not a happy camper <laughs> not, a, not a man happy with things in his life a dark dog if you will yeah yeah uh he he shows up a lot if you if you exp uh read books about uh, Warren Beatty. He 
was uh, he and Inge had a continuing creative relationship. He wrote <laughs> Splendor in the Grass, and you get the sense that Inge was to some degree uh, in love with Warren Beatty, but there, it was an unconsummated relationship physically, but a depending upon how you look at Warren Beatty, it, it was a... A, a good connection in for in terms like of his, of uh, as a good collaboration or you could look at him as someone who sort of used William Inge's attraction to him to further his acting career which you know actors using people's attraction to them to further their career isn't really a negative I don't I, it's hard to see that as a negative when that's pretty much the entirety of uh, most actors lives is you'll cast me in this because you think I look good as this. <laughs> Interesting enough in the cut, which we're doing next week written based on a book written by Susanna Moore. She also has a Warren Beatty connection in that she was his assistant in the night in the sixties. Oh, so why do both these disturbing psychosexual dramas have large Warren Beatty connections with the authors of the books? <laughs> Well, because I mean, because Warren Beatty. Well, because Warren Beatty was a was a sexual revolutionary. I think if you were, I think actually Warren Beatty is kind of like a Rorschach test. There are certain movie stars where the way people judge them or don't kind of defines the the people making the judgments. So if you're offended by, if you think Warren Beatty is just a playboy and a know-nothing sort of pretty boy, then you're missing what's really interesting about him. But if you see him as a sexual revolutionary, as a revolutionary in, in film and as a, you know, in, in culture and in his personal life, then if you are interested in pushing boundaries, then you're going to be drawn to that. Like, if you don't feel like you fit in the world the way William Inge might feel like he doesn't fit in the world or Susanna Moore might feel like they don't, she doesn't fit in the world, then someone like Warren Beatty, whose life is very accepting of difference, of exploration, is going to be a welcoming place for you to be, at least for a certain amount of time. Hmm. Certainly more so than you know, hanging out with Dorothy Malone's character or <laughs> Caroline Jones's friend who like, she's your friend until you do something that makes society nervous. And then she backs away. You don't get that sense with, uh, with Warren Beatty or his sister, Shirley MacLaine. Uh, yeah. Are you exhausted? <laughs> you sound exhausted. Emotionally. <laughs> like, like I tell you, this movie gave me nightmares and rarely, does a movie do that to me where I just woke up in a cold sweat, just you couldn't shake the disturbing imagery and parts of this movie. Just, Can uh, I ask you, would it have been, was it, was it giving you nightmares knowing that you had to talk about it? Yeah. Or would it have given you nightmares <laughs> if think, you had just watched it? I think both. I don't know. I think it definitely like kind of scarred me in the moment. <laughs> But I think maybe it, like part of the nightmare was, oh, I have to figure out how to discuss this without putting my foot in my mouth or just like because I was worried because I knew that you were interested in talking about this. And I was just like, I really don't want to talk about 
<laughs> this movie. But here we are 83 minutes later. So clearly it happened. <laughs> <laughs> Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. This is Kate Zazowski. And this is Caitlin Reese. And we are Straight Guys. Okay, no we're not. We're actually queer women. Fooled ya. Literally no one believed we were actually straight guys. Your mom did. That doesn't even make sense. Join us as we roast straight and gay culture, answer sex and dating questions from straight folks, and make the news gay. We also roast each other. It's pretty easy. Caitlin kind of sucks. And we have a lot of funny queer special guests. So listen to Straight Guys. A podcast that's anything but on Paperhouse Network. Dear listener, If you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Eight notes scale an octave. I can't get you to do the Stepford Wives remake, but... You can get me to do this movie. Okay. <laughs> as long as we could do the Stepford Wives original as well. Uh, and then, you know, we could talk about, you know, Paul Williams, the uh, our friend, the director, Paul Williams. Yeah. He was originally set to direct the, the original version of oh, Stepford Wives. Interesting. That would have been a very different movie. Yeah. And he had a, like, his idea was great was that. I need to go back because I don't want to get it wrong, but I think it was some something along the lines of that he was going to have the Stepford Wives played by soap opera actresses and have the the pre Stepford like the women who weren't Stepford Wives played by re, like by better actor actors, and then they would have to take on a, a worse <laughs> style of acting when they fl- flipped over. That's great. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. That's really fun. Someone needs to do that now. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. uh, hmm. yeah. Hey, I'm, hey, I'm, I just, in terms of, <laughs> it was part of the kid mania. Let's be clear. I didn't <laughs> put the full kibosh on that movie, although <laughs> I think it is a much worse movie than Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff. But, you know, we can take, we can talk about that when we talk about it. You want to, you want to bring that out? We can bring it out. We will be continuing this conversation next week because yes. when we get into, in the cut, I feel like we're going to be referencing good luck, Miss Wyckoff a lot in, in terms of saying that in the cut is a better, just probably a better version of a similar kind of movie. 
Yeah, we, we kind of made a nice little upsetting double feature for our listeners. <laughs> but don't worry. After that, we are going to get into the Noscars. We are in Noscar season. Like we, like the nominees were announced a few weeks ago, and here we are, the first week of March, and I'm excited for the Noscars. That's also something for people to look forward to. Start making your own lists at home and compare with what we have. Maybe what you thought the Oscars ignored, we will champion. Now, for people who aren't familiar with what the Noscars are, they are alternative film celebration ceremony, and to be eligible for a Noscar... A film has to have zero nominations. Zero. Nothing. So, for example, this year, that means every year there's like one film that we want to talk about for Noscars, but we can't really because it gets one sort like of like sound design or something. Hair and makeup. <laughs> uh, I will I, I will say as a spoiler alert, if it wasn't nominated Lady Gaga would be in my running for a Oscar uh, for Best Actress. I did watch House of the Gucci, and uh, it's not a great film, but she is a really special actor. How does uh, Jared Leto portray my people? <laughs> is it respectful? <laughs> or is he Chef Boyardee it all over the... <laughs> oh, oh, no, I tell you. I tell you, Brian. Why? Why don't they like my design? <laughs> it's, it's actually pretty fucking awesome. He is in such a, he is in such a place uh, that... I'll, uh, I'll give it a chance. I hate I hate Ridley Scott, but I'll give this one a chance. It's not a good. It's not a. It's it's not a good film. <laughs> it's not a good film. But uh, the other two performances that are so great. But we can't do it because it's up for makeup, right? Yeah, it got yeah. makeup. It's so, so it's so it's so uh, sad. I'll I'll probably get booed at our Oscars <laughs> ceremony. Did, try and did you see uh, Jimmy Kimmel the other night? Last uh, the other night was complaining about the nominees. And he referred to it as the nominees for the the ones that didn't happen. So he's, he's well. That's uh, he's not. A, he he almost got as long as he didn't call them the nominees because that's how um, we that's that those are our winners are the Os, the Oscars nominees. No, he said no nominees. Uh, so yeah, the, we, the, this year's Oscars are terrible. <laughs> the, the selections are the most boring films of the year. Uh, yeah, whether they're good or not, it's just sort of bland. And like, what's great though, is I saw that and I got really excited because I realized that all but one, I, we can talk about and nominate, nominate. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. only the one on mine that I can't talk about is the new Bond movie, which I did love, No Time to Die. And it's up for like sound mix or something and song. So that'll be the one exclusion, but oh, the rest of them, this is going to be a great year for the Oscars, like a really, oh. really good year. Be- way yes. better than the Oscars. I think the first one we did last year was good. There was some good, but we definitely had to kind of dig into some more obscure stuff. What's crazy is we don't have to even do that this year. Like there's like a lot. And for a year that didn't even have as, as many movies out. And yet we're going to have an abundance. I think in our list, I think are going to be pretty different. I think you're going to have a lot and I'm going to have a lot. And both of them aren't like hard to find things. They're just great, great movies that the Oscars did not give a shit about. Yeah, Crazy. we could talk about like they're like <laughs> Pig, Annette, The Last Duel, French Dispatch. Yeah, 
uh, last night in Soho. Well, the last uh, nobody... the last duel did get a Golden Raspberry nomination. Fuck the raspberry. <laughs> <laughs> it's not again not Ridley Scott. Not a great, not a great, great film, but certainly. Well, I haven't seen all of the films. I'll tell you one one Oscar film I watched, Brian. Uh, we watched. Uh, I watched the one by our old friend Aaron Sorkin. Oh, <laughs> okay. Being the so Ricardos. Is, so, is there going to be a response episode? Like, because last year you were not happy with his Chicago. Uh, what was the movie? What was the movie even called? Trial of the uh, the 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 Trial of the Chicago Seven. So you yeah. weren't happy with that. So then you responded with the November Men. Uh, so yes. is there going to be a response to this? Is this or did you love it? Because <laughs> you love Nicole Kidman. I will say, I will say this: that Nicole Kidman. I mean, she is such a great actress. She in the beginning of the movie, I'm like, who is this fucking alien trying to play uh, Lucille Ball? And by the end, she, I believe, I believe her, Lucille Ball. Wow. Uh, she does some really, really great work in the film. I don't think she should be the best actress because I don't think anyone should give any credit to this film because it's a noxiously stupid movie. Uh, <laughs> but it's up your up your alley. Deals with like blacklisting and oh, all the yeah. things you okay. love to talk yes. about. Well, let me just say that a movie <laughs> that the whole premise is that she has been labeled a communist because she joined the communist party because her grandfather fought f- believed in workers rights and she supported her grandfather and then later on she was never part of like she was never part of the evil communist thing quote yeah putting heavy quotes around the evil communist she didn't advocate for stalin or whatnot but she believed in the principles that the communist party represented in America in the thirties. And so the whole film is that she had, that this gets found out and she's being called uh, a red and a communist and Ricky Ricardo or uh, Desi Arnaz is trying to find a way to navigate this, to keep their show on the air. And he's doing it by saying she checked the wrong box. That's his one line. It's like, she checked the wrong box. And there's a whole thing. And they're like, hey, I didn't check the wrong box. She's like, we need to just say you checked the wrong box. So she did support things that the communists stood for. But now she has to distance herself from that to stay on TV. And spoiler alert, folks, the hero of this movie, this supposed this movie that's supposedly dealing with the blacklist, the the hero who rides in at the end to save the day when they're ha- they're putting on the show and Desi tells the story of how Lucy is being falsely accused of being a communist and he gets someone on the phone to say that Lucy isn't a communist and guess who it is Joe McCarthy J Edgar Hoover <laughs> the hero of the day of this movie I love him <laughs> Aaron Sorkin is I think. <laughs> The worst person in the world. Uh, no, that was J. Edgar Hoover, actually. <laughs> well, I guess he's dead now, so now it can be Aaron Sorkin. This is the great oh, American liberal. He, he uh, turns Abby Hoffman into a someone a who celebrates America. 
and Jake turn Hoover, the J. Hero. Edgar Hoover into <laughs> the hero of the blacklist. Oh, so you liked it. <laughs> I wouldn't even know what film to pick. I guess we could do the front again. <laughs> How is the, uh, is there any good anti J. Edgar Hoover movie? How's the Clint Eastwood movie? I never saw it. Does that no, kind of go into no, him being a bad? Still... No, I mean, there's... <laughs> I don't know if there's been a, there's been a really, the the truly honest J. Edgar Hoover, Hoover movie. Hmm. Um, yeah. No, I, I don't know. I mean, he's, Maybe in his uh, the Bob Hoskins portrayal oh, in Nixon of, of, in Nixon <laughs> where he has like that's... The, the young boys feeding him grapes. Yeah, that's pretty. good. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the... Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Being the Ricardos, you suck. Sorry, no. Wow. The actor, the acting is all really good. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> they also have this weird thing where they're sort of doing the Reds thing where they're having people older. Well, it should be the the real people, these older people telling their story. So it's they're like all dead again, now, right? Like can't actually be the real people. Right. But so he's cribbing from the opening of Reds, Warren Beatty's movie about about how like the good aspects of American communists and what they were actually fighting for. So he takes that to start off his movie takes the movie starts with just like an old person addressing the camera and talking to you about what it was at the time. And then you realize halfway through, wait, wait, that's Linda Lavin from Alice. She was not a writer on the I love Lucy show. And then it's just like, yeah, it's just like, God, I really, I really, I really, do not like Aaron Sorkin is my least favorite. <laughs> he is definitely my least favorite filmmaker that I'm going to watch everything he makes. <laughs> you love to hate. <laughs> I don't even love to hate it. It's just like he you just want to know. <laughs> he deals with topics that I'm interested in yeah. and actors that I care about, but his take is is horrible. <laughs> Who tells a blacklist story and make and that's first of all that's not even true. J. Edgar Hoover never called into the I Love Lucy show to do that. So You're Aaron Sorkin up, just made just that up. You want him to be liked and want people to think what a great guy. The audience, <laughs> like at that moment. And as a as a watcher, I did the, like when that happened, the music swells, the audience claps, and I was moved. And it was just sort of like, I am moved and I say, fuck you, Aaron Sorkin. How dare you? How dare you toy with me like this? (laughs) So much more offensive than anything in Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff. Wow. (laughs) Well, thank you for turning in your report on Ricardo's movie. Now, what's going to be my make? I need to find the movie from last year that really gets me. I haven't found it yet. Um I've learned my I learned from Mank and but then we got we gained a cat's meow episode from it. So maybe I need to watch the the movie that's gonna make me upset. I don't know what maybe it's West Side Story. I don't know. We'll we'll see. Though that movie looks good. I don't know. But also it doesn't look as good as the ten movies I have for the Oscars. So Yeah. I think I just lucked yeah. out it was a good year. Twenty twenty one was a great year for movies, despite being a, a year where we couldn't go see movies in the theater. So I'm excited. And so tune in in a few weeks. We'll be going to have that come out the week before the Oscars. Very exciting. Very exciting. 
Yeah, and if you follow the Oscars, folks, you are going to be able to have this experience that we had this year where we were just waiting for the Academy Award nominations to come out, hoping that the films we loved would not get any <laughs> nominations. And they didn't. <laughs> and they didn't. <laughs> but I was surprised was that there were films that I thought, like I really thought The French Dispatch would get some nomination just because it's a big Hollywood movie and it's Wes Anderson and at least like something. Yeah. Like not art, even cinematography or yeah, yeah. nothing. Nothing. Very weird. And very I was, weird. you know, I it's sort of like, oh, how are we gonna fit we gotta find a way to celebrate that on the world is <laughs> Which wrong. is weird. Yeah. In a way. <laughs> it's weird yeah. that we're gonna be talking we're gonna be talking about like a huge star studded movie. Yeah, I'd rather <laughs> ignore that. The Oscar that's a film the Oscars should be covering. And honestly, a film like King Richard is the kind of film we should be doing on I this know. podcast that it's like, oh, this really boring thing that doesn't look very good. And then you watch and you're like, exactly oh, good. wow, that was a really moving picture. Not an Academy Award worthy picture, but certainly not a film that you should be ignoring. I don't know. The, word, it's, the world's topsy-turvy, Brian. You know, like, you, know you may even say the world is wrong. You know, I say that a lot. <laughs> I'm starting to think that someday I'm going to end up on a street corner just <laughs> shouting that. Yeah, after we've gotten our souls broken from a million good luck Miss Wyckoffs, uh, we'll uh, just be the two men on opposite corners with cardboard signs to say the world is wrong. We'll have big long beards and everyone will hate us. But we'll know that we're right. <laughs> we're right. The world is wrong. Yeah, we'll be shouting at people on his corner just like Kevin Bacon accosting women in, in the cut. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, uh, so, uh, so yeah, so next week we're doing In the Cut from Academy Award nominated Jane Campion. Uh, all of our Oscar drubbing, I, I will say, I, I do think Power of the Dog is a film that is definitely, uh, is certainly worthy of, nomination and celebration and she's she's gonna win it's sh- my prediction. yeah she should my win she's gonna it win because she's great i mean i don't think it's a film i'm gonna wa- go back and watch as many times as i'm gonna go back and watch annette uh but uh but it is definitely deserving and it'll be exciting to dig into her filmography and talk about in the cut a film that you chose yep so you're also a weird sexual pervert, <laughs> but a, a kinder, gentler one than than whoever picked Good Luck, Ms. Wyckoff. <laughs> you want to say anything about In the Cut? No, I'm just uh, watch it. It's I'm really excited to talk about it. It's a movie that a lot of people hate, but I feel like it's worth kind of bringing up because of all this love that Jane Campion's been getting. Uh, for another difficult movie, but she's always made difficult movies and always very challenging movies, and she's fantastic. And In the Cut is as good as anything else she's made. So I'm very, very excited to talk about it and watch it. It's on Netflix. Very easy to find. In the Cut also has an uncut version. Extra and... one minute extra. Oh, I I think I know what that one minute is. <laughs> yep, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> Does it involve a mustache and a butt? Uh, <laughs> doesn't it always? <laughs> <laughs> yes, fans of fans of great mustaches are going to love this movie. Mark Ruffalo, 
yeah playing like a young Burt Reynolds. It's uh... <laughs> so listen to the Mordecai episode and then tune in yeah. to it in the yeah. episode <laughs> next week. Let's let's keep yes. celebrating the mustaches. <laughs> if you have insights or thoughts or questions to share about this or any of our episodes, you can write to us at contact at the world is wrong podcast.com. You can find a page devoted to every one of the films that we cover on our website at www.theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram at the world is wrong podcast, and you can find us on Twitter at world is wrong pod. And uh, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. We'll keep asking. We will be sad when we don't, but we'll move on. We'll move on. That's okay. Uh, but we'd love to hear from you. And uh, yeah, well, how, so, so please, uh, it, there's got to be something we said in this particular episode <laughs> that had you wishing that you were a part of this conversation. So if you'd like to contribute your ideas, please, we, uh, we, we need them. We are, uh, we are hamstrung by our own consciousness, consciousnesses and, uh, or our own consciousness. And so, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be Miss Wyckoff or Rafe, but I feel like I do know what it's like to be that principal. <laughs> like I, I just want I don't know I yeah, I want to be a I nice agree. guy. That's the I character I can relate to the worried the worried principal. I think I have a friend like two thousand miles away who would probably still hire you. I don't know. I, just, I wish you wouldn't have to leave. I'm gonna be all alone now. Uh, yes. So uh, yes, we'd love to hear from you. Please share your your thoughts and your insights. Until next time. Are we, are we ready to get out of here, Brian? Let's please get away okay. from okay. Freedom, Kansas. I don't want to be there anymore. Time well, to get on the bus. Time to leave. Yes. Well, if you happen to be in Freedom, Kansas in the 1950s and you're listening to this, then this message is particularly for you. Wherever you are, just remember the world is wrong and it is probably wrong about you. Miss Wyckoff. You know, in all my years of experience... I don't think I've ever been in a position that I've hated as much as I hate this one. Nor have I ever been more at a loss to understand if the reports that I've heard are true. They're true, Mr. Havemeyer. Well, I think I've had enough psychology to understand that there must be some reasonable explanation, either emotional or psychological for what you've done if you want to tell me about it mr havermeyer i think the reasons are unimportant now i mean i have always felt that uh, teachers needed more emotional outlets goodness knows that uh, some of the normal pastimes and recreations that others enjoy so freely are denied us I enjoy a drink now and then, but I would never allow myself to be caught with a glass in my hand. Obviously, uh, measures will be taken against this uh, Negro Rafe. I wouldn't want to see him lose his opportunity for an education. It's in the junior college board's hands now. Certainly the football fans would be upset if they kicked him out. But they mustn't. Well, between you and me, I think that the next time he scores a touchdown, whatever he's done will be forgotten. The uh, 
resentment against you is much stronger. I've already received some very threatening phone calls about you. It's ironic, isn't it? A man never suffers the same social ostracism that a woman does in situations like this. That's true. Well, you must realize that the uh, pressure is on me to... Uh, You know, you are probably the finest teacher that I have uh, ever had the pleasure of working with. But I have to ask you to resign, as of now. I understand. I mean that I think you should plan on leaving now. I know. Well, is there uh, anything I can do for you? Well... It would help if you could possibly give me a recommendation. I realize what I'm asking, but maybe in some place far away. I feel certain I could live up to any recommendation you can give me. It's all right. There was a uh, young man that I went to school with when I was getting my master's degree. Uh, he was a very bright fellow. He's now superintendent of school someplace in New Jersey. He's. Uh, He's a good fellow, and he's broad-minded. I would have to tell him that I asked you to resign and give him some truthful explanation. But at the same time, I could still give him a very, very good recommendation for you as a teacher. You know, I, for one, believe that this uh, behavior pattern, the lapse in it is uh, over, that it won't recur. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I guess this is uh, goodbye. Yes. Yes. Goodbye. Evelyn, why? Why on earth did you do that? Mr. Havemeyer, you've been very kind. Good luck, Miss Wyckoff. Uh... I don't know where we're going to put this, Brian, but okay. <laughs> it's a week later after the conversation we had about good luck, Miss Wyckoff. And there's a few things that stuck with me. Uh, you know, it's I guess the fact that, first of all, the fact that it, it stuck with me and made me ask so many difficult questions to myself as I was thinking about it makes me yeah. think more and more that this is an important and potentially great movie. Okay. But there were a couple things that I thought of about, and I wanted to be clear. It's like, because we, I think we disagree or we started off the conversation disagreeing about the movie, but mostly my arguments aren't with you, but with a, the part of your point of view that I share, the, the part of your point of view that had me turning off the movie at basically the same time and having yeah. a very similar visceral reaction to it. And yeah. maybe my impulse in when I have that visceral reaction is to like look, interrogate it more intensely. And yours is to be like, get just to <laughs> run away. Just yeah. no. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> so my thoughts about this, I don't want to make it really clear. I'm not, uh, the things I that any if anything sounds uh, 
accusatory, I'm accusing myself and maybe the areas and they might be areas where we agree or don't agree. So yeah. I guess that was just like, you know, we, we did our episode about the wrongness and double standards were one of the symptoms of wrongness. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> we have the tolerance we have for the brutalization of you know, not just people, but the brutalization of women in films that we love and champion uh, is pretty big. We're going to be doing an episode about uh, Pretty Maids all in a row. Uh, you love James Bond, and I have loved James Bond. We both love the movie Death Proof. I could go on yeah. and on. <laughs> and we've never felt the need to look away. Or if we have, we haven't felt the need to broadcast that that's what the movie was about. And either to like distance ourselves, like there's some impulse there. There's a double standard. And so that's where I sort of like had to want to dig into this, the (laughs) symptom. There's a symptom of wrongness. Where, where, where is it? Do you you want to say anything about that? Well, I think, I think at least for me, it's a matter of tone. And I think that's the way with any violence. And like, there's been violence in movies that have made me faint. Like when I was in high school, I was a big fainter because I tried to see every movie. And so I would see movies that normally would be outside my comfort zone. And I would just straight up faint in a the movie theater at home. But then I could watch, you know, like Rambo mow down a million people and laugh and think it's hilarious or like dead alive or something, you know, which is insanely gory. And I think it's like, you know, like death proof, is brutal like the violence in it is upsetting in a way but that never really bothered me i think because the tarantino like tarantino movies in general all have this kind of funness to it even though there's a brutality to it like even like the more harder scenes in like pulp fiction and stuff like i'm i'm maybe there's a moment of recoil of like oh but then i'm laughing nervously laughing or going along with the ride and same thing with like scorsese movies and stuff even though his movies aren't necessarily funny there's something about it that's more palpable in a weird way which is uh palatable <laughs> this movie pal- palatable i've said this word wrong before on the show <laughs> i know pal- palatable <laughs> and uh, i think this wyckoff i think it test and it's now been a week since i've watched it i think it's a testament to its quality of acting and tone that i kind of like because the scene that's really upsetting happens about an hour into the movie and I think by that point, I was sort of like, kind of didn't really realize I was invested in all these characters, even like the janitor who was just like a side character. And so when these parts happen, it felt like reality to me in a way. Like it felt like I'm watching something actually play out as opposed to a more fantastic, like you brought up Wild at Heart in this episode. And that scene is brutal when he beats up the guy at the beginning. But it's to this like crazy heavy metal thing, and it's really over the top. And so like that scene of violence seems is actually more brutal, I think, than this movie. Like you see the guy's face get splattered all over the, you know, staircase. Yeah. But I'm when I I've, every time I've watched that scene, I'm laughing and I'm thinking, oh, this is crazy. Like I've seen it in a theater full of people where people are laughing and going nuts, you know, in a, in a positive way. And I think it's a weird, it's a weird thing because it's like definitely violence i think i mean and this is like it's old you know everyone knows this but like i think hollywood makes violence very safe for people in a crazy way you know (laughs) like people dying in movies and getting blown away 
is more comfortable to people than sex. And then even like uh, assault scenes, like in this movie, there's even scenes like that in like Game of Thrones and other shows now where it's more common and it's a little more people still upset by them. But I think that like I think it's because Wyckoff, maybe because it was made in the seventies, maybe because it's not a very stylish movie. It just is was more upsetting to me, just more just how it, in a way, the other movies should, but don't. You know, I think maybe it's good that we're all upset by violence in some movies, and we should be more upset by violence in all movies because violence is terrible. Yeah, and it is. It is a double standard. Like I can, you know, the the, the hunter episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just talking about how hilarious and great. You know, like it's very violent and very weird. Or like I love Dirty Harry, I love Death Wish. Like these are movies that are definitely, when you look at them, not even very closely, like problematic, <laughs> but they're done for entertainment. And I think this movie is not Wyckoff is not supposed to be an entertaining movie, and it's not supposed to be a movie that is going to make you feel good. I think it's supposed to be challenging. And here we are a week later, still being challenged by it, which I think I have to backtrack and say that maybe this isn't a terrible movie. The fact that we're still pondering it you know i mean, I just, like a truly truly terrible movie would be one that you don't remember after you watch it yeah well yeah i mean like I, we could just keep keep going maybe this should live in the same place that out of the oh out of the blue out of the blue like a place yeah this lives where that that lives this should, this movie lives in that place another very uncomfortable depressing like that movie made that movie upset me <laughs> but a but a true expression of that 70s ethos i think i mean yeah king yeah. of marvin gardens those guys treat those women very badly you know very mm-hmm. poorly you know and and yet we can watch so we turn and so that that's the that's the one thing and then but i i wanted to like I wanted to figure out, like, what is it about? Like, okay, so there is a double standard. Definitely. What, for me, what is it that made this so literally repulsive or repellent to me? And there was a level of, like, I don't want to look at this. Yeah. But I feel like we talk about white supremacy and and when we've talked about some films on the podcast. And when you really think about that at one of the big elements of that is the element of lynching and that that taught that terrorized a a probably a larger segment of the population than we even think of when we usually even think about that the fear uh it instilled in just sort of anyone who wanted to cross that color line in any way even if you're like wanting to be elvis and sing that music you that could get you beaten up so imagine the idea of people wanting to become lovers or wanting to become close and the amount of terror that lynching holds over that. Uh, and that the idea, I don't, I've never thought of that impulse existing in me at all. And yet there is something in my reaction to this crime, this questionable crime playing out in front of me on the film and, you know, we, we joke about how we react like the principal, but the principal reacts like the guy who closes his window when the lynch mob goes by. And maybe he doesn't join it, but he's too afraid to stand up to it. And so he's complicit in it. And I just feel like there's probably something really 
ugly subconscious terror training uh, delivered through the world we live in that makes it harder to watch this scene than other even, you know, than, than straw dogs, than other rape scenes I've watched that haven't terrorized me so much. And, I'll, and part of it is, I'm, is, is, like I said, I'm afraid for the people, for these people in, this, in the frame. I'm afraid for her. I'm afraid for him. I'm afraid for the whole town. Um, so maybe it comes from compassion, too. That's part of what terror, you know, terror is a, it teaches you, especially if it's like ancient terror or terror that you inherited, it gets you in different ways. Some ways it makes you more compassionate. In some ways it just makes you a coward. And in some ways it makes you complicit. And so that was part of what was there as I was thinking about it. And then the other part was just, I know William Inge wrote this and Marvin Chomsky directed it, but Polly Platt wrote it and Anne Haywood starred in it. And the film, in the film, this woman is telling us she's not a victim. And yet we are not believing her. Uh, we saw what happened. So we don't, so we know that that is something that neither you nor I would condone or want to participate in. But if she's telling us she's not a victim of something, I feel like we have to, on some level, at least take the character at her own word. And the film is saying that getting out of Freedom, Kansas is a good thing for her and getting past her, uh, the burden of her virginity uh, is a good thing for her. And again, I have to wonder, is there something, like is there some racist terror inside of me that makes me insist that she's a victim against her will, which again is one of the driving forces of many lynch mobs. And coming back around and getting it off of myself, and you don't have to speak to any of that because this is that's really some heavy <clears throat> shit. If the film is making me ask these questions, then this is a great film. That's and if it's not asking these questions, then I am a phenomenal viewer. <laughs> I am forcing this film to ask these very difficult questions that it didn't intend, yeah. but I think it has to. I think that's, yeah, so. Well, I mean, all very smart people made this movie. I don't think anything in this movie is accidental, but it definitely, I think the, the, the hardest thing about this movie for me is that it isn't, it isn't very clear with its intentions exactly, especially with this hard stuff at the end. And it's kind of leaving it to the viewer to kind of sort it out and figure out why, like there's not a lot of scenes with the characters talking about their feelings or why, or a lot of evidence as to exactly why these people are doing this or feeling this way. And it's kind of letting us have to kind of make these connections ourselves, you know, it's uh, and that makes it a more challenging view because it's not all laid out on the table <clears throat> as most movies tend to do. But not the best films of the seventies, which feel more like European films. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. The, yeah. Which is very true. And so it, this movie definitely is, is um, the other Polly Platt is pretty baby like that. Do they, is that, or is that more clear cut with what's everyone no. kind of decisions? No. Or is that also kind of no. nebulous in a lot of ways? Very much show don't tell. 
almost yeah there's no big moments of yeah it's very they're both very ambiguous hmm. they're not ambiguous yeah they are films that take an ambiguous stance to things that are unambiguous yeah yeah maybe i just wasn't in the mood for being and having a movie that was ambiguous i wanted someone to tell me what i was supposed to feel and then i left with all these feelings <laughs> and then we recorded it pretty quickly after which i think is why i the episode i'm a little heated because i came in being like i don't want to do this episode i'm having too many feelings that i don't understand and then we, you just said, well, let, let's do it right now. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so we just poured out. And maybe that's why I feel like I came off as a little hostile towards the movie. I think because I was feeling that because I was, I was upset by it, but it's, it is, I do feel better about it a week later. Like if we'd recorded it now, I don't think it would be as good because I mean, I'm glad recording this part now, but like, I think I yeah. definitely was like in the right mood because you had already seen it. And so you're, you could be more thoughtful about it. And I was more reactionary, which I think is a lot of people's response to watching this movie. Like the few people that I've told that we were doing this movie, their response was, oh, God, that movie. <laughs> so I think I'm not alone with a response of like, oh, wow, that was intense. Like that's a lot to take in and try to figure out. And a lot of people don't want to figure movies out. They just want to watch it and then let the movie tell them what it is. Even, you know, quote unquote, harder movies. You know, like if you look at like the hardest movie that wins an Oscar, usually it's not as complex as this, that they kind of lay it all out on the table. Oh, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just so regular people can watch it and kind of go, I know what's the bad guy and the good guy. And, and this movie works in so many gray areas, you know, like even the people in the town that say horrible things and do horrible stuff. They're not they're not villainous. They're just people and people are horrible in a way but also confused and yeah like it's the 50s the were 50s bad the 50s were the 50s like it was a weird the 50s were really bad i think that's and and it not yeah. i mean things have changed for the better and things have not and like there's still you can make a movie like this now about a small town or a big city and have the equally people that have very confusing you know moral compasses and very interesting prejudices and yeah it's just humans are complicated <laughs> well especially uh, along, freedom. Uh, along those lines uh first of all just to make an admission it's one of my great embarrassments that i uh <clears throat> i share something with our with our dear departed roger ebert in that my initial reaction to blue velvet was like your reaction to this film yeah i really was hostile to Blue Velvet the first time yeah, I saw it. it's an intense movie. So again, that's more of the Lynchian thing. <laughs> but we did kind of, you let something slip back there that I just can't let go of. You used to faint. <laughs> first of all, full stop, that you used to faint. I don't know anyone outside of Victorian novels who faints. <laughs> no, it was a big... It was a big problem. I had a is my I had I had a big problem with it where I would watch things, and because I'm such an emotional person, that I would get so wrapped up in a movie or TV show, and I would just pass out, and and like it would happen constantly, like around. You, the, did you was it because you were hyperventilating? I don't know. I would just get so upset, and it wasn't necessarily things that were scary. 
it was just like violence in movies or intense situations. And like, like when I was a kid, my favorite show was the X-Files. And every time I'd get so worked up, I would faint to get to the point where my parents made me watch it laying on pillows on the ground. They're like, if you're going to watch the show, you have to lay on the ground on pillows. So that way you can just faint and not fall because I, I, uh, uh, and I saw a move and like, it was hard for me to watch movies and I would get really nervous and panicked. And like, I remember watching death becomes her and getting very upset <laughs> by that, by that movie. <laughs> And be like, oh god, and just like being really disturbed by that movie, which is all in it. Like that movie is violent, you know, but it's like Looney Tunes violence. And then it all kind of built to a, a crescendo when I went and saw the Tom Tyker movie, The Princess and the Warrior. Did you ever see that? It stars Frank and Patent. It was his follow up to Run Lola Run. Uh, I don't um, think I saw it. I saw it in the theater alone. A scene of violence is pretty early on in the movie. Um, and I just passed out in the theater, totally fainted in the movie theater, which I'd never done before. And what I didn't realize, uh, it was pointed out to me, when I wake up from fainting, I scream myself awake. <laughs> <laughs> so in this intense part of this movie, I faint and then I go, ah! And of course, I like, my first memory from consciousness is everyone in the theater looking at me just terrified and my blood sugar totally dropped. So I couldn't even move. And I'm just looking around being like, did I pass out? And these people just being like, shut up kid. I'm trying to watch this movie. And, uh, I literally had to crawl out of the theater on my hands and knees. No one would help me talk about, this is some freedom type of people here. No one helped me. I literally crawled up the aisle of the theater, like on the ground. Was this at the Capitol Mall? Or no, no. This Yelm was or? when I lived in Bellingham. This is when I was going to college oh. in Bellingham when I went to Western. Uh, it was a theater called the Pickford, I think. Nobody helped me. It was a theater, full theater. Zero people. I'm crawling on my hands and knees. I reached the lobby and I just lay there and some nice little teen usher comes up and was like, Oh my God, are you okay? And I'm like, I fainted the violence in the movies too much. I can't handle it. And he sat there and fed me peanut M&Ms until an ambulance showed up. And then like, they, peanut allergy, peanut allergy. <laughs> and then they were like, what happened? And I'm like, I just fainted. I just I get really nervous when I watch violence in uh. movies. And they took me in the ambulance and they just took me home. They're like, we'll just take you home. I, they didn't charge me for the, they just like they just dropped me off. I was like 20 at the time, I think. They dropped me <laughs> off and they're like, "Don't watch movies like that anymore." And I'm like, "I guess." Like this was just an art house movie. <laughs> I wasn't expecting. <laughs> but then I would get really nervous like seeing movies for years in theaters where I'd have to do the research and be like, "Is there going to be violence going to upset me?" Or I would get up and leave. Like I would watch a movie and get really nervous that there would be violence and I would just leave. Like I remember trying to watch uh Inglorious Bastards in the theater. And I would get up like every 15 minutes and kind of make, get to the door and watch and then feel safer and get back. Like it was a very annoying date to go to the theater. <laughs> I'm a sensitive man. <laughs> it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened in years. Like it's been uh, 20 plus years since this has happened. But like in my youth, this was just a constant weird. Yeah, you're right. I was just a character from like a Victorian book. Just some lady. With you know, laying well, on the ground. I feel like Gilligan. <laughs> I feel like Gilligan fainted a fair amount. Uh, yeah, on but... Gilligan's Island. So <laughs> I was like, like one of those fainting goats that you see. <laughs> ah. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm glad we were able to. <laughs> 
turn this serious conversation to the slapstick comedy of my youth, the fainting constantly. And uh, just to be clear, I, I relate to this so much, not the fainting part, but the being squeamish. Yeah. But it should be noted that in during that during this time, you were the co-host <laughs> pr- and producer of an all-night horror <laughs> a festival, a night of horror at the Capitol yeah, Theater at the Olympia Film S- Festival. A, so it seems like an odd combination. That, that's, of staying up late and seeing horror films, which is good, that, which is at odds with your fainting and screaming that's, uh, uh, difficulty. That's what comedian Emo Phillips said to me. <laughs> because uh, the most recent time... This, this, is, this the, is not the first time that I've... Uh, that, that he and I have crossed japes. Okay, but go on. He, uh, well, I went to his house for dinner, and he little known fact... He did very well from Meet the Parents because he produced the original Meet the Parents. Like there was a version made before the Ben Stiller one. There was an indie comedy, which then was bought to make into the big Ben Stiller show and or the Ben Stiller movie. And Emo Phillips was a producer on it. So then he got great success just by selling the rights to this original version of Meet the Parents. So he has this beautiful home. Him and his wife made us, or we had this nice dinner with them. And this was after... He had worked with me on a, sh- a show I did called Hunky Boys Go Ding Dong, which is very comically violent and gory. And then over the course of the dinner, I, w- I was talking to him with my writing partner, Zach, about this really gory Western that we did. And we were talking about all the deaths and stuff. And then his wife was like, oh, I have a story. And she told a story. I won't go into it. That was like a real story of violence for some reason. <laughs> she wanted to tell us that. And I got really woozy. <laughs> And I almost fainted. And at Emo Phillips' house, I'm the weaker one somehow. <laughs> and I just lay, and Emo Phillips is like, let me help you lay down. <laughs> and then when I've kind of like got some water, I mean, felt a little better. He was just like, how can you write such violent things, but you can't handle someone else telling you basically the same thing? Like, what's wrong with you? There you go, double standard. <laughs> I'm a walking, talking double standard. <sighs> well, I guess that's it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.